In our first reading, we heard, I pleaded, and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepter and throne, and deemed riches nothing in comparison with her, nor did I liken any priceless gem to her. The Hebrew word for wisdom is hacham. It is not some kind of academic quality, but a very practical one, such as being astute in one's business affairs, exercising prudence in selecting one's friends, and knowing that the laws set out for man by God are designed for our happiness as individuals and as a society, and to disobey them would be utter foolishness. We heard from Psalm 90, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain wisdom of heart. Not surprisingly, this psalm is used at funerals where we are confronted with the stark reality of our human frailty contrasted with the eternity of God. We're forced to acknowledge the reality of our own death. No one escapes the grave. One who is wise will not hide in terror from the reality of death, but will allow the truth of being a creature of limited days to help form moral choices one will make during this very short course of life. And such a person's life, however long or short, will then be rich with blessing, meaning, and be a witness to others of God's graciousness, something that not even death can destroy. And then we come to the gospel, and we see the wisdom of God in the flesh, in the person of his son, Jesus. Now, there are four things to note here. First, the unidentified man ran up to Jesus, suggesting urgency on his part, or maybe the intemperance of youth, because running in Jesus' day was considered undignified for a grown man. Second, the man knelt down before Jesus. This is often the posture of worship, but here it reflects the deep respect of one who wishes to become a disciple of a great teacher. Third, the man addressed Jesus as good teacher which tells us the man saw Jesus only as a human being, as another man, a very wise man that he obviously wished to seek advice from, but only a man. Fourth, this man realized what so many do not or will not. Life is encircled by death, and there comes a moment of realization for everyone that the days behind us are far greater than the ones that lie ahead. The man desired to know how to inherit eternal life because he knew it was not something that just happens, but depends completely on the choices we make in this life. And he rightly sensed that Jesus, the good teacher, as he called him, can show him the path to eternal life. Because the man saw Jesus as only a man, Jesus replied, why do you call me good? 
No one is good but God alone. Jesus did not in any way deny his divine nature. He simply allowed himself to be taken at face value by a man who was sincerely seeking the truth. And that meant, listen to this now, that meant he was responding to grace. When anyone wants to talk to us about Jesus, when anyone wants to talk to us about our faith, why we believe what we do, it would be wise, for the moment at least, to believe that person as responding to God's grace. Jesus recited the Ten Commandments to the man. And the man said that he had kept the law since his youth, meaning he took seriously the spiritual struggle to be what God created him to be. Jesus knew he was telling the truth, just as he knows the truth or the outright lies or the half-truths we tell him. The gospel tells us something that often goes unnoticed. It says, Jesus looking at him. Jesus looked at this man. Now, why is that little detail important? This is not just the way you and I normally look at other people when online at the post office or at Walmart or attending a sporting event. They're strangers to us. And so our look, if there is any, is brief and we tend to avoid eye contact. Jesus' look, and I would argue with every human being, is very different. It is the look that spouses give to one another when words are just no longer necessary. It is the look that genuine friends give each other when they enjoy the simple pleasure of being in each other's company. It is the look that says, I know who you really are. I know all the potential that lies within you. I know what you are capable of being. Not surprisingly then, the text goes on to tell us that Jesus loved him. And this is where things begin to break down. Jesus said to him, you are lacking in one thing. Go, sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. That was a huge request because the man was very wealthy. As God, Jesus knew this. He also knew that for this particular man, it was necessary. The man simply could not do it. Why? He was not in control of his wealth. His wealth controlled him. Some think Jesus demands this of all of us. In a sense, he does. One's wealth, however, 
can take on a variety of forms other than just material wealth. One can be rich in all kinds of ways. Hoarding things we don't use just to accumulate them to feel secure. Self-importance, snobbery, an excessive self-reliance that entices us to resist sharing what we have with those in need, an addiction, be it booze, drugs, or sex, always needing to be the center of attention, arrogance, pride, anger and resentment over past hurts, jealousy of others' possessions, and the list of what we can be so wealthy in goes on and on. Do such things control us by distorting our thinking, our perceptions, how we re relate to others, how we relate to God? Are we in control of those wealths? Or do they control us? Is Jesus, who looks at us as he did that man, who sees all we are capable of becoming as he did that man, who loves us as he did that man, asking us to give up those things that would block us from eternal life? Absolutely. This is what prompted Jesus to warn his disciples and warn us through his living voice in the gospel. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for one who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The only thing the only person that blocks us from the kingdom of God is ourselves.